Hello, dear people, to the fifth episode of our monthly reporter cast for October 2022. I am Matej Roska, the journalist who owns Reporter.London, and this time we are doing something of a special edition, looking at a particular issue which I think deserves a lot more attention, although it is only indirectly connected to our usual mission of discussing and exposing economic crime, though this theme is certainly part of the mix. The issue is the Russia-occupied territory of Transnistria in the east of Moldova and within the country's recognized borders with Ukraine to the east and the river Nistru to the west, acting as a de facto border. The capital is in Tiraspol, the largest city. This supposedly separatist enclave was created in 1992 after Russia invaded Moldova and waged a brief war because the country sought independence after the collapse of the Soviet empire. And as our guest um, today knows all about it and is about to explain, not very much has changed since. However, uh, the region has seen increasing tension and its rulers have been repressing dissent a lot harder since the onset of the Ukraine invasion by Russia in February this year, which I think requires attention from the international community. Our guest has been the chief negotiator in the peace process between Moldova's legitimate government in Chisinau and the separatists. He was a lead advisor on this issue for the US embassy in Chisinau and also he launched recently an NGO in Moldova to focus on the topic. The name of the organization is called is uh, Initiative for Peace, based in Chisinau, and our esteemed guest's name is Alexandru Flenkia. Uh, welcome to ReporterCast, Alexandru. Thank you, hi. Um, before I start asking questions, I would like to say thank you to our advertisers at H5 Strategies in Bucharest, uh, political and uh, executive consultancy specialized in Eastern Europe, Africa, and Central Asia. And now, before we start discussing current events, I would like Alexandru to tell us a little bit about his life experience and how he ended up as an expert in the region of Transnistria. Quite accidentally, to be honest. Uh, when I was in my last year at the university, I was an intern at the Secretariat of uh, the Moldovan Parliament. And then I think it was, uh, what, 18 months after graduation, my uh, internship supervisor called me and said, hey, there's a vacancy in, in the Moldovan government in the newly created Ministry of Reintegration. And it was back in 2003. And why don't you apply, which I did and passed the interview and was employed as a junior civil servant at the again newly created Ministry of Integration. And the ministry was created and the head of the uh, ministry, the minister back then, because now it's a deputy prime ministerial position, uh, are uh, in charge of the overall political settlement of the Transnistrian conflict and the, uh, the head of the agency, the, the um, deputy prime minister, minister at the time, also acts as Moldova chief uh, negotiator in in uh, in the talks and so this is how it started almost 20 years ago and since then i've been working on in and about transnistria all, all the time non-stop i understand okay um 
And thanks. Thanks for giving us that bit of background. Can we talk a little bit also about Transnistria itself to give people who might not know uh, a bit of a, a bit of color? Uh, what is the economy like? What is the standard of living? What are the biggest activities, economic activities, that sort of thing? I guess from London, uh, the living standards in Transnistria and those in Moldova are com comparable. There's nuanced differences that can only be seen from when, when you're here on the ground in, in either Kishin or the capital of Moldova in, in Tiraspol in, in uh, Transnistria. Uh, wages are generally a bit lower in Transnistria, which I will further also refer to as uh, the left bank because there's a river separating uh, Transnistria from the rest of Moldova. So the wages are uh, a bit lower, but then on the bright side, they have extremely cheap public utilities and petrol uh, for a number of reasons, which I understand we'll be talking about later. So yeah, comparable from, from a distance, I would say. And Moldova, uh, note, uh, is among the, the uh, if not the poorest country in, in Europe, uh, definitely poorer than any EU member state, even the, uh, like Bulgaria or Romania. Uh, Transnistrian economy is super monopolized. On one hand, they've inherited uh, a number of uh, industrial plants from, from the Soviet Union. Uh, most of them collapsed. They were part of the uh, so-called industrial military complex of the Soviet Union. So those collapsed, but also inherited uh, energy sector uh, enterprises, a huge uh, power plant that operates on gas, Russian gas, Gazprom, uh, also a steel plant, and a couple of others. And then there's that business empire, or as it often referred to, business conglomerate called Sharif uh, that controls literally uh, virtually everything in, in Transnistria from retail uh, to fuel, uh, telecom, and uh, even has businesses in sports like uh, uh, Moldova's many times, 10 times, I think, champion uh, uh, Sharif, uh, Moldovan football championship. Uh, that's about it briefly. A, a big, uh, big part of Transnistria's uh, economy is, is, is shadow economy. And, and Transnistria's business model is based on two pillars. First pillar is the free Russian gas that they, uh, the Transnistrians haven't been paying for since 2004. And the second pillar is smuggling. And when I say smuggling, it's uh, uh, petrol and diesel fuel, it's alcohol and tobacco products. And um, before we uh, get into the gas, because I want to ask a, a question about how the gas setup works, because it's a bit special. Um, when you mention smuggling, shall we imagine that um, alcohol and tobacco and uh, petrol and so forth that are produced in Transnistria end up in, uh, in the European Union through, through smuggling? No, they're not produced in Transnistria. They're imported from elsewhere, from, uh, from all sorts of country, countries. And then they vanish, so to speak. That is, the goods are physically uh, and officially 
in uh, uh, many cases, uh, with full respect to Moldovan legislation, with all the customs clearance, it's imported into the region, into the Transnistrian region, and then it's gone. It's gone on papers, it's gone physically, and uh, cargo ends up in Moldova proper, in Ukraine, and in the EU too, especially when it comes to cigarettes and alcohol. Yes, they, much of that ends up in Europe. Okay. And the gas. Um, Transnistria has one of the biggest um, electricity generation plants in uh, Eastern Europe, if not the whole of Europe. And it receives gas from Russia that it transforms into electricity and it doesn't pay for the gas. You, you already said this was happening, but can we explain a little bit the arrangement with the gas also because gas is a major concern at the moment for everyone, not just in Moldova. Well, the arrangement is that there is no particular arrangement. There is only one legitimate uh, importer of gas in Moldova, which is Moldova Gas Company. And I have to, uh, um, I have to explain the, uh, the, the, the setup and who owns the company. So 50% of the shares of Moldova national gas operator are owned by Gazprom itself. Uh, then 30, 36% of uh, uh, shares owned by the Moldovan government. And then the rest, which is 30 point something percent owned by uh, the Transnistrian administration. And, but they transferred their shares to Gazprom. So effectively Gazprom controls uh, 62 thirds of, of, uh, of the company. And Moldova Gas is the only company that has a contract within Moldova that has a contract signed with Gazprom and is the sole official importer of that gas. Because of, of geography, because Transnistria is uh, located at Moldova's eastern border, uh, and this is where the pipeline come, enters Moldova through. So obviously, the gas physical, and I'm simplifying things, but just to explain how, how it works. So uh, the gas that comes from Russia first enters Transnistria, they consume the amounts they need, in particular to operate their power plant, and then uh, uh, not only cover their own needs in electricity, but also sell, they sell electricity to us, to, to the rest of Moldova. And then the remainder goes on the other side of the river, it's Moldova proper. And since 2004, Transnistrians have not paid a single penny for the gas that consumes. So basically, it's, it's just theft. It's a subsidy, isn't it? It's because yes. of the because of the fact that Russia occupies this, the Russian army occupies Transnistria has been continuously present in Transnistria since '92, and uh, the political leadership, the the so-called political leadership, the is allied to to Moscow and it's subordinate to Moscow. Um, Gazprom gives them this economic lifeline through gas, and it enables them to uh, create free energy and um, and also, I suppose, in in extremis, control the supply of gas to Moldova. Because if there were a, a conflict, I suppose that the Transnistrian would have the physical possibility of stopping gas flows to Moldova. Is that correct? Yes, this is what they did back in the summer of 1992 during the uh, the war in in France. They did indeed stop 
gas supplies to this side of, of uh, the river. It is a form of subsidy from Moscow. Uh, and we're talking about almost 9 billion of US dollars worth of uh, uh, such kind of subsidies and then divided by a population of roughly 300,000 people. It's a tiny region, um, tiny population, and nine billion, almost $9 billion is a lot of money, uh, even for all of Moldova. Uh, it is comparable to Moldova's GDP. It's not as, as, as much as Moldova's GDP, but it's comparable to Moldova's GDP. It is indeed a lot of money. Uh, I'd like to make two remarks here in Europe. Introductory remarks, you said the uh, supposedly separatist region. It is separatist region uh, without discussion. It's part of Moldova that separated itself and uh, proclaimed independence back in 1990 in violation uh, not only of uh, the international law, but also in violation of the constitution of the Soviet Union, which still existed back in September 1990 when uh, proclaimed uh, uh, so-called independence. Uh, and the other remark you also said, uh, Russia invaded Moldova in 1992. Well, it didn't. Uh, technically, uh, the Russian troops had been there. They just never left. So uh, service Russia troops and then Soviet troops. And then uh, after 1991, Russian Federation troops had been there and after Moldova proclaimed independence, uh, were supposed to leave the territory of a sovereign state that they were uh, uh, illegally uh, deployed in, uh, which obviously, as we know, never happened. They never right, left. right. Okay, well, thanks. Thanks for, thanks for putting that straight. And, uh, but, but yeah, indeed, that, that, that does not annul the fact that Russia was indeed involved in the 1992 war and that explains uh, why in uh, what is usually being referred to as the ceasefire agreement signed by uh, Moldovan and Russian presidents in July of 1992, where there was a particular article stipulating that Russian uh, forces uh, uh, located in, uh, in Moldova, in its Transnistrian region, would uh, uh, observe neutrality. There was a reason for that. Because they had not observed neutrality during the war. And obviously, just like uh, look at what happened in Donbass back in 2014, it was uh, uh, exact same scenario of what happened in, in Transnistria in 1992. Uh, civilians all of a sudden in possession of Kalashnikovs, in possession of artillery systems, including multi-launch artillery systems, like the ones used by the Russian troops in uh, Ukraine as we speak. Uh, uh, suddenly in possession of, uh, of tanks and basically there was no explanation. It just, it just happened to, to own tanks and Kalashnikovs and, and, uh, and artillery systems. Uh, so yes, the war was provoked by, by, uh, by Moscow and by the Russian troops. Yes, it was sustained by uh, the Russian military and it was stopped uh, by, by Russian military when uh, it deemed uh, appropriate and convenient uh, for Moscow. Right, of course. And just to, just to clarify, uh, when I said supposedly, I just meant that uh, it wasn't an organic sort of grassroots separatist movement like, like oh, right. in the UK. Yes. In the UK, we have separatists in, in Scotland. 
We have mm -hmm. a, a Scottish National Party that wants to separate from the rest of the country and create Scotland as an independent country. And um, that's also separatism. But the difference, of, obviously, is that there's no foreign power, foreign nuclear power even, that is uh, subsidizing and, uh, and uh, encouraging Scotland to become independent. So that's why I said supposedly, just because um, um, the, the separatism of, of Transnistria is, uh, is sustained and, and uh, encouraged by the Russians. Okay, um, point taken, and uh, I agree on that. It's linguistic nuances. Uh, no, of course, and you know, language these days is, is a sensitive issue, so no, no worries. Um, first of all, point taken on, on the semantics, and um, um, th thanks for, for allowing me to clarify that. And I would like us to, I would like you to, to give us a, a brief list of, of the top three, four most important people in Transnistria, who are the decision makers, the, the influencers, the, um, the politicians, the leaders, who, who should we uh, remember when, uh, when, when we talk about uh, Transnistria? Well, the, the list is actually much shorter. I could limit it to just one name, that is Victor Gushan, the, uh, the owner or the co-owner of uh, the sheriff um, conglomerate of, of, of companies. There is a second uh, co-owner named uh, Ilya Kazmali, uh, but he has not been involved that much into politics uh, lately. Uh, the two come from a police background, uh, cops in, in their past founded the company uh, back in the early 90s in, in uh, Transnistria and smuggling has been, uh, at that point, especially in the 90s, smuggling uh, was uh, uh, their main business operation, so, so, so to speak. Uh, all others, the, the, the public faces, because you, uh, for example, you will not be able to find recent photos of, uh, of Victor Gushan on, on the web. Uh, the person is, is not public, does not talk to press. He, uh, his security does not allow taking pictures of him. So you'll literally not be able to find uh, 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 pictures more recent than like 15 years ago, maybe even 20. Well, that's quite interesting. Um, uh, so a very private yeah, So the man. public faces and the, Yes, he is. The public names and the public uh, faces, the people who, who make the so-called Transnistrian uh, uh, government, the so-called president and, and others, are, in fact, work for Sheriff for Victor Gushan and, and, and he controls everything. Uh, in addition to that, I can't help but also uh, mention that Russia, obviously, Moscow have, uh, has uh, they have their own people in, in uh, Tiraspol. And there's people in the security sector, in the military, uh, who have their the respective chains of commands in, in Moscow, not in uh, Tiraspol. Okay, right. That's interesting. And yeah, well, I, I've known um, how, how private Mr. Gushan is uh, for several years. I've been writing about Moldova for about 10 years now. And a couple of times I phoned uh, his uh, his underlings to try to get an interview or try to ask a few questions and there was just no chance and um, 
the last time I tried to do this was when Sheriff Tiraspol was playing in the Champions League in November, I think, or October last year. And again, they said there won't be an interview, there won't be a press conference, and uh, our que uh, my, my questions, I was working for, for a newspaper at the time, our questions will not be answered. So um, there we are. Um, but uh, Sheriff Tiraspol is, um, as we have learned now, a big business conglomerate, which includes a football team. Could you talk a little bit about the football team? It, it, it's, it was quite uh, surprising for many in the West when the football team uh, started playing Real Madrid and Inter Milan. And um, how come uh, such a small and poor un internationally unrecognized enclave has generated such uh, world-class competitive football? Was football um, a, a particular uh, hobby of, of Transnistrian people since Soviet times, or what's the explanation? Uh, uh, no, football was and still is a particular hobby for Mr. Bushan uh, personally, uh, which is why he, uh, he created the team uh, at the end of uh, the 90s, I think it was the uh, late 90s. Well, with the caveat that I myself am not a football fan, and I uh, would not be able to talk uh, much about uh, sports itself, but the business and the political aspects of, of, uh, of it. Uh, uh, first, uh, we need to explain that Sherry football team is uh, uh, a member of Moldovan Football Federation and is otherwise a fully legitimate uh, football team and legal entity. It, the, the team acts as a Moldovan legal uh, entity and is a member of the federation. And it is in this capacity uh, that the team participates in uh, all sorts of uh, European tournaments, uh, wherever they can make it into. Uh, there are obviously uh, questions, big, big question marks unanswered um, yet about the transparency of, uh, and the legality of funding of this football team. Because um, obviously, I mean, it's easy to make a miracle, uh, even such a small country, uh, such a small country as Moldova is, and even in a smaller region as Transnistria is, when you have millions and millions and hundreds of millions of unaccounted cash. And so it just happened so that Viktor Gushan is a big fan of football and he had lots of money in, in, in cash back in the 90s when he made the team. And it is a business. I, it would be hard for me to tell whether or not it generates money for him, or it's just a hobby that he keeps paying for every year. But he definitely can definitely afford uh, uh, buying uh, uh, players from um, a long list of African and South American countries, uh, young, uh, talented uh, football players uh, who, can, uh, who can then grow in the European uh, Cops, and then the uh, sheriff sells uh, those those players to other other teams in in, uh, in Europe. Right. So um, I take two interesting um, aspects from this, and one is that um, it seems uh, Mr. Gushan and Transnistria are very happy to be part of Moldova when it comes to football. There's no separatism when it comes to football. The the countries are united. Well, the country, because it's one country, the country is united. 
not, second, not only yeah. football, not only football, if I may. That applies to all sports. All Transnistrian sports people uh, uh, make part uh, in uh, their respective uh, Moldovan sports federations. And they all participate in international uh, uh, tournaments under Moldovan flags. Okay, that's very nice because um, it, it shows that potentially in the future there is hope. It shows that these are to, uh, somehow pragmatic people and they're not totally um, obsessed with the idea of separatism. Um, oh, no, no, they, they're not. And I think we have to, uh, uh, to explain this to unprepared audience. Uh, Moldova Transnistria situation is, uh, is nothing similar to uh, conflicts in South Caucasus, for instance, or in, in the Balkans back, back in the 90s. There are no uh, animosities among people. Uh, there is uh, no religious or ethnic conflict. It's political conflict with the uh, huge uh, economic slash business backgrounds and motivation to keep the... Uh, the conflict unresolved because Transnistria's business model can only um, operate as long as the entity is not recognized <clears throat> for reasons we, we discussed above. But otherwise, people have no problem and no issue travel crossing the river, visiting each other, making families, uh, playing football, or, uh, uh, or uh, even organizing concerts uh, on the yeah. other side of the river. Right. And so I would like us to come back to the present times now. And um, um, of course, Russia decided to conquer, to try to conquer U Ukraine, the whole of Ukraine in February. And I would like you to, to say how you perceived the reaction in Transnistria to this invasion. Um, what was the atmosphere like? And what are the concerns in Moldova around the potential annexation of Transnistria or potential involvement of Russian troops in Transnistria in the Ukrainian war, in oh, the Ukrainian invasion? That's actually many questions in, in, Sorry. in one. Uh, reaction in Tiraspol after February 24th was super cautious because obviously Russia is the political patron of, of Transnistria and provides political, economic, and military support and cover to Transnistria. But there's Ukraine in between uh, Transnistria and Russia. Uh, and that, by the way, is to my mind, is the only explanation uh, for why Russia has never recognized Transnistria and never tried to annex it. And the explanation is that they don't have a common border. So they just not be able to sustain it should Russians uh, uh, recognize Transnistria's uh, so-called independence. So uh, decision makers in, in um, or the decision maker and his puppets in Tiraspol have been very cautious and mindful from the first days of the war. Uh, and they adopted their usual tactic uh, which they also used back in 2014 um, after Russia's annexation of Crimea and the war in Donbas, uh, they just ignored anything is happening in, in uh, Ukraine. Uh, no reports in the press about the war, no mention of the war. The only mention were the refugees because uh, many of, of Ukrainian refugees also ended up in, uh, in uh, Transnistria 
including because many of them uh, are originally from Transnistria. So many people just went back home to their parents' extended families. Mm, so yeah, there's refugees all of a sudden for no good reason. I mean, if you were to read Transnistrian press and follow their uh, official public narrative, for no good reason, all of a sudden, there's thousands of refugees from Ukraine, either transiting uh, uh, Transnistria or stopping in, in uh, Transnistria. So they had to be, they, I mean, the Transnistrian leadership uh, had had to be cautious and never they never called it the war they never called it uh, yeah, uh, a special military operation they just avoided referring to it they pretended it didn't exist now right. uh, sorry i apologize there's a bit of noise in the air conditioning or the heating system here which is a bit annoying but uh, there we are um so they it's good you have it, it. it's it good it's exist. good you have it it's good you have it yes well well quite yeah um, so they pretended that the war didn't exist. But um, in June, a man called Viktor Pleshkanov, who is, we should mention, he's just an ordinary man living in a block of flats. He's 58 years old and he's not um, an, uh, a known dissident or political player or anything like that. He was just a man who had a sense of humor and he liked to speak out about things that um, that he didn't like, especially regarding the um, the political situation in Transnistria, he liked to criticize the Transnistrian government, the so-called Transnistrian government, and express his verbal support for the Ukrainians who were suffering a great deal because of the invasion, because of the Russian uh, aggression. And this man was arrested in June for displaying the Ukrainian flag on his balcony. And then um, the MGB, which is the local version of the KGB, the MGB, after they arrested him, they searched his house and they searched his, uh, his computer and phone. And then um, on top of the accusation about the flag, they gave, um, they gave the, the, the case a bigger meaning by, by accusing Mr. Mr. Pleshkanov of extremism for expressing support for the Ukrainians in his online posts, on, on Facebook mostly. And um, in September, he was sentenced by a, a Transnistrian so-called judge to three years and two months in prison. And um, um, I, would like to, I would like us to talk about this case a little bit, because I think, first of all, it's... Uh, it's, it's not right for, for ordinary people to suffer because they have certain opinions and if they express their opinions peacefully, they shouldn't be put in prison. And secondly, because um, as you said, uh, the Transnistrian were very anxious to ignore the war and not, uh, not take part in, in, in Russia's uh, campaign in any way. Now, could you give us your analysis of, of why they would have arrested Pleshkanov and what this means for the relationship between Tiraspol and Moscow? It is exactly for the reasons uh, stated above. Uh, the Transnistrian leadership pretends there's uh, no war in Ukraine, nothing is happening, and they avoid taking any sides. And honestly, Mr. Pleshkanov, uh, uh, was a uh, disturbing factor, so to speak, speaking out loud about the war, condemning Russia. Uh, look, you're an oligarch. 
in a tiny separatist region of Transnistria. And your businesses and your prosperity depends on uh, Russia's uh, political support and depend on, on the degree to which Russia's happy with you running the region. So you don't want to annoy Russia. It also depends on uh, uh, your relationship with certain people in, in Ukraine, most specifically in, in uh, Odessa, which is the closest uh, large city to transmission, also large uh, seaport, and also people in Kiev. So, and when you depend on people in, in Moscow, in Kiev, Odessa, but also on people in Kishino, what you want is to avoid annoying those people. And the uh, uh, best way to uh, keep everyone happy keep silent, uh, keep silence and keep everyone silent and pretend nothing is happening and uh, uh, make your, your money in, in the shade, so to speak. And obviously people like Vishkanov who speak out loud, who call things what they are, and call the aggressor and aggressor and the war, war and, and so on. They're disturbing the uh, uh, so-called uh, public, uh, public peace and public order, and they need to be neutralized. I mean, I'm, I'm using a bit of a cynical language. That's exactly uh, where things are in Transnistria. And this is exactly how they, the decision makers in trust would perceive these things. Uh, the person has to be neutralized. Best way to put him in jail. Supposedly three years should be enough for the war to be over and then he carries afterwards. Okay. and. Um, so before I move on, I'd like to bring up our advertisers again. Um, thank you to H5 Strategies in Bucharest. It's a business and political advisory group specializing in Eastern Europe, Africa, and Central Asia. And I would like also to mention that um, this podcast is com completely independent of the advertisers. They uh, don't have... Um, any veto or, or involvement in the content or the questions or the guests. And it, that's all up to me. And we, we thank our advertisers for their trust and support. And now um, back, to, back to the subject at hand. Um, so they thought that by putting Pleshkanov in prison, they would make him quiet and also encourage the rest of the population to stay quiet in order to avoid prison. Now, um, be that as it may, uh, given that uh, uh, Pleshkanov was arrested for free speech, do you think he should be released? And uh, do you think he got a fair trial? I was in touch with his lawyer, Mr. Pavel Kazaku from, uh, from Promolex, and he said that uh, he, he couldn't find he couldn't obtain the sentencing documents and uh, other important case documents and the, um, the trial was held secretly and that in general, it's his legal opinion that this wasn't a fair trial, but I would like you to, to give us your opinion. And um, what do you think Tiraspol should do regarding Mr. Pleshkanov? And in, in general also, is there, is there a fair justice system in Transnistria? No, there does not exist fair and dependent uh, judiciary in Transnistria. I mean, Transnistrian courts uh, just are anything but justice. Uh, and unfortunately, Mr. Polishkanov is not uh, a unique example 
is one in a long list of political detainees in, in Transnistria. Uh, the regime in Transnistria has, also, has always been uh, repressive against opponents, uh, against independent NGOs and media, and there has never existed a genuine or even apparent uh, pluralism in Transnistria, which is why yeah, political parties in Transnistria don't exist. There's just one political party, which is why free press in Transnistria does not exist. It did, uh, there was uh, a couple of independent media outlets uh, in late 90s, early 2000s, but the last decade, I think, all of the independent media have been shut down. And so were independent NGOs. So civic activism, uh, political, uh, uh, so speak, NGOs, human rights NGOs cannot operate freely in Transnistria. And you mentioned uh, uh, lawyer Pavel Kazako, who I happen to know very well, and Promolex is a Moldovan Kishino-based NGO, uh, which was uh, banned on, on the territory of Transnistria. I think it was 2013, so for almost one decade, the key Moldovan human rights NGO with a focus, with a particular focus on Transnistria has been unable to cross the river and travel to Transnistria to defend people, to document cases uh, for that exact reason, because they do human rights and because the Transnistrian regime does not need NGOs doing human rights because that interferes with, with their uh, uh, political and business interests. Right. And um, in that context, um, what do you think um, outside uh, partners of Moldova um, should do regarding Transnistria and regarding the case of Mr. Pleshkano? Uh, I'm talking about Brussels, Washington, London, and various, uh, various uh, international NGOs, the United Nations, the government in Moldova, the spokesman for, for the foreign affairs minister in Moldova told me that um, they've already filed complaints with the United Nations regarding Mr. Pleshkanov and other political detainees in, um, in uh, Transnistria. Uh, what is your opinion about this? Unfortunately, international organizations cannot help and uh, have not been able of helping in the past in similar cases uh, in releasing people, political detainees in Transnistria. Unfortunately, I mean, Transnistria obviously is not a member of any international organization and is outside of uh, uh, the control of the international law, so to speak, and is outside of the control of Moldova's constitutional authorities. Um, so no uh, legal instruments can be efficient in, uh, in having political detainees released. It is only direct negotiations with Traspol combined with pressure, political and economic. Basically, you have to apply leverage on those people in Traspol, that particular person in Traspol who, uh, who makes decision and uh, force the person to make the decision to release people. Unfortunately, it's only this way that can work. And guess what? If one person released, you have two more arrested uh, the next day. So uh, the point I'm trying to make is that 
there does not exist any good solution to the problem of, of political detainees in Transnistria, other than the resolution of this protracted conflict and of reintegration of Transnistria into Moldova and return of this region into full legality provided by uh, Moldovan constitution, Moldovan uh, uh, law and uh, international conventions that Moldova is party to. Right. But um, of course, I, I, I take all these points, but um, um, the UK and the EU and, um, and uh, the Americans as well have a Magnitsky regime of sanctions in place. And sometimes with, with these sanctions, they target people who they consider to have abused human rights. Oh, and me, you're breaking up. Uh, can you repeat the last sentence again, please? Uh, yes, sorry. So, um, so in, in London and Washington and Brussels, there's a Magnitsky uh, sanctions uh, regime in place, a, a sanctions program. And these sanctions often are uh, targeting uh, leaders that uh, have been accused of abusing human rights. So, um, you know, by this definition, you would think Transnistria's um, decision makers might be subject to sanctions because they tend to abuse uh, human rights in, in Transnistria. And I just wonder, why do you think there have been no sanctions against Transnistria so far and whether do you think there should be or not? Well, in fact, there have been uh, sanctions imposed against Transnistrian leadership by the EU at the request of uh, the Moldovan authorities back in 2003 and 2004. In 2004, uh, the EU imposed uh, a sanctions travel ban for a list of Transnistria's top political leadership, including the so-called president and members of the so-called government and other key uh, decision makers um, for undermining the uh, negotiation process. And then also in 2004, at least was extended. In fact, the EU, the Council of, of, uh, of the EU uh, adopted an addendum to the initial, uh, uh, initial uh, um, sanctions de uh, decision for another violation committed by the Transnistrian regime. And that is the, uh, the forceful closure of Romanian language schools in the region. Uh, and that closure happens uh, uh, with violent acts, with violence against children, the students of, of those schools and of their parents and uh, uh, their teachers. So, and the list was uh, expanded and included more people uh, directly involved in uh, into what was called the 2004 school crisis. As of now, those uh, sanctions are, are still in place. It's just that the... Uh, the lists are blank. The names, uh, because the situation has improved, uh, both in the talks or had improved at, 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 at the point in time when, uh, uh, when, uh, the, uh, when uh, the sanctions uh, uh, were suspended. Um, in fact, technically it wasn't even a suspension. The, 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 these uh, sanctions are still there, it's just that the, the list is empty. But uh, to my mind, and as far as I know, uh, there's people in Brussels who share same opinion. Or, uh, in fact, there is even a consensus. That at any point, if there's a good reason 
uh, for sanctions to be reintroduced against uh, Transnistrian leadership, uh, the Council of the EU can do that. Can do that. So because the decision is 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 uh, still there, is valid since 2004. Nobody uh, cancelled it. Uh, it's just that the annexes with the names uh, have to be uh, have to be approved by the Council. Right, and so it, so it turns out that um, in addition to the Magnitsky sanctions, there's also this previous um, tool that they have, which which they could use. So do you think they should use it in the case of Mr. Pleshkanov or not? I think there's many more reasons to at least have uh, this issue put on the agenda of, uh, uh, um, of the European Council. And, I, and it is up to the government of Moldova to request uh, that. Because again, Pleskanov uh, is not a unique case. The list of political detainees in Transnistria is much longer. The list of abuses and uh, human rights violations in Transnistria is, is also much longer. Uh, so should the Moldovan government decide um, to address the, uh, the EU and ask that the decision be discussed, uh, I see no reason why the, uh, the EU, the Council, would not at least consider reimposing those sanctions. And even a travel ban would, would and could be um, quite an efficient tool. Because if you think of Transnistria, if you can picture Transnistria on the map, sandwiched between uh, Ukraine and the rest of Moldova, uh, with no ability to travel to the EU, and the EU is only 90 kilometers from where I am physically right now in Chisinau. So it is the, the closest destination, uh, especially now with the ongoing war in Ukraine, there's little uh, uh, um, that people in decision makers in Tiraspol uh, could or would want to do in, in Ukraine or even in Russia. Russia being under sanctions. Many of, uh, um, of the people in the so-called Transnistrian government and law enforcement and security have uh, their own real estate in Europe, in, in countries like Cyprus, Spain, Germany. Uh, so without the ability to travel to those locations freely, um, those people would really be restricted in their freedom of movement. And if you, if, if you think uh, Transnistria is just a strip of land, uh, something in between 12 and 25 kilometers wide, I mean, it's not uh, too many destinations that you can travel to within Transnistria. Yes, well, that's a very important point. And of course, on top of that, the football team now is an international financial uh, player because it sends and it receives international banking transfers from um, you know all over the world including prestigious organizations such as the champions league so um, correct, correct. Um, that is potentially a target for sanctions as well i would imagine you know, of course um, I, I i don't know how um, how how it, it might turn out no, um, i think we have to differentiate between uh, uh, political people or people who make political de uh, decisions that affect either the broader public or, or certain individuals uh, uh, limiting or violating their uh, um, legitimate rights and freedoms. 
stipulated in Moldovan legislation provided for by, by the relevant international conventions. And so I have to make the difference between these people who are responsible for these kind of violations and sports, legitimate entities, whether a football team or a business operator. If it's, it's a legitimate business and the legit legal entity that respects all relevant Moldovan legislation and by extension international legislation while punishing the company, the, uh, the, sanction, the, the possible sanctions uh, have to be very uh, targeted and target those who are indeed responsible for violations of human rights. Right. Well, I, I suppose that's a very good point because the, the, a similar thing happened with Chelsea London. And um, there were sanctions against uh, the former owners of, uh, of Chelsea, but the team carried on. The team never stopped its, its uh, work and, and um, the players weren't affected. The fans weren't affected. Well, some of the fans were a bit upset, but in the end, the team continued and there's new ownership now. Yeah, so, but after all, it is not the football players' fault that Putin decided to invade uh, uh, Russia and they may agree or disagree and I suppose most if not all of them disagree with that and strongly condemn the aggression so definitely no reason to punish the, uh, the sports people uh, right. for the violations that they did not commit and um, um, uh, I, I would like to, to, to make you uh, speculate a little bit which you're probably not going to like but still um, what would a victory of uh, Ukraine in this invasion mean for Transnistria? So if the Ukrainian army drives out the Russian army and Ukraine regains its territorial sovereignty, uh, what does that mean for Transnistria? And conversely, what does it mean if the Russians win? You know, the unthinkable happens and the, the Russians actually conquer Ukraine or southern Ukraine eventually. Uh, and not to be honest, and that may not be uh, necessarily obvious, uh, but to my mind, I, it is my firm belief that the future of Transnistria is in Moldova's hands. It depends on us, on the government here, on the politicians here in Chisinau, more than on anything, anyone else outside Moldova. Uh, what will happen uh, to Transnistria in the near to midterm future, whether or not Transnistria will continue being a separatist, unrecognized uh, uh, region, entity, or it will uh, be part of Moldova um, again, and Moldova will restore its territorial integrity. Regardless of, uh, of the outcome of, uh, of the war in Ukraine, which is in itself not that obvious, I mean, couple of hours ago, uh, Putin uh, decreed martial law in the newly annexed territories. So it's really hard to predict uh, uh, what the future dynamic of the war will be, or what the future of the war will be. The dynamic is, is unfortunately negative. We're seeing a, a sequence of, of escalating steps uh, in, uh, taken in uh, and by Moscow. Uh, but if, if if Moscow were to, let's just imagine for, for a minute, if Moscow were to occupy all of uh, Ukraine, it would hardly stop 
in Ukraine and not march all the way to NATO and EU border, which in our case is the border, Moldova's border with Romania. So, and I, um, I think that scenario was quite realistic in the first week of the war and many people in Kishinev feared that was gonna happen. And let us not forget that uh, in uh, the plans that Putin's generals pre presented to him before the war, they were supposed to march a parade in, on, on the street, central streets of Kiev and, uh, 72 hours after the invasion. And if, again, if that was to happen, it would have taken them another 72 hours to march on the streets of, of Kishinev. Now, obviously, Ukrainian resistance and the uh, the overall dynamic of this war has, um, uh, has put pressure on Putin and made him reconsider the, the war plan and consider new possible exit strategies. And uh, unfortunately, there don't seem to be too many uh, good faith saving options for Putin. And uh, again, Putin is the kind of person for whom faith savers matter more than substance. He could shoot himself in the foot just for the sake of a good uh, faith saver and the good narrative of him being the strong leader of the greatest nation on earth. Uh, so unfortunately, again, I, uh, I understand your question about was about Transnistria. I'm uh, speaking more about the war in Ukraine, but I cannot ignore this, especially in the light of, of today's decision made in, in Moscow. I, I think we... Um, uh, the, the world is, is, is not uh, getting any closer to peace uh, at this point with, with the, uh, the most recent decisions. Right. Okay. Well, with that, um, I would like to, um, to conclude our, our podcast. I would like to say thanks again. And I hope some people out there who are listening and watching will have learned something new about Transnistria and about Moldova, which is an increasingly important part of the world. It's very important for Europe's security and therefore for global security. And so if any policymakers may have been listening as well, I think they should uh, come to their own conclusions and um, perhaps focus a little bit more on, uh, on Moldova and Transnistria in the context of, of the war in Ukraine. Uh, thanks again, Alexandru, and thanks again to H5 Strategies in Bucharest, our advertiser who is um, um, an executive and political advisor specialized in Eastern Europe, Africa, and, um, and uh, Central Asia. All the best to you, Alexandru, in the future. Best of luck and every success. Thank you.